I'm Maggie John, and this is Context Beyond the Headlines, a place for conversations with newsmakers, culture shapers, and peacekeepers, where we explore the intersection between faith, justice, ethics, and society. These statistics are shocking, and yet year after year, they only get worse. The opioid crisis has gripped Canada for the past five years. And since the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, opioid poisoning fatalities have skyrocketed to an average of 20 deaths per day. But behind the person who is struggling with an addiction is often a family desperately trying to do whatever they can to get their loved one clean. For some, the grips of addiction are too tight. Today, I share my conversation with a father whose son died from an overdose just last year. But not all stories end in overdose. One man shares his struggle with addiction and how he found a way out. This is part one of two episodes on the opioid crisis. Next week, we'll discuss harm reduction measures that are keeping people struggling with addiction alive. But is it really the path to recovery? And later in the show, I sit down with our senior producer, Hannah Vanderkoy, and we talk about our so what for this show. Why did we choose to talk about the opioid crisis? You know, then you go to these calls and we don't, um, we don't know who's there. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I, I hope it's not him. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm not showing up to him. Jeff Walsh is a firefighter in Brantford, Ontario, who has responded to countless overdose calls. But back at home, his son was dealing with his own addiction to drugs. Jeff and his family tried everything to get Brody the help he needed, but nothing worked. Here is my conversation with Jeff. So Jeff, as a firefighter, how have you seen the opioid crisis hit this small town of Brantford? Uh, It's... um... It's hit it huge, Um, specifically in the last four or five years, we went from really not seeing a whole lot of overdoses to, um, whereas now it's it's every shift um, you're seeing overdose calls. Um, It's affected a lot of families. Um, It's it's really done a job on the city for sure. It's affected your family. It has affected my family. Yes, it has. Tell me about Brody. Describe who he was, what he was like. Brody was my first son. Um, He was from a broken marriage. Uh, My wife and I, my ex-wife and I split up when Brody was 18 months old. And so he was, um, there was a lot of animosity between us, and uh, it uh, transferred over to him through his childhood. But um, he was just, uh, he was a kind soul. Uh, he wasn't really into a lot of stuff. I got him into motocross racing, and that seemed to, uh, seemed to really be his niche and everything. And then when he was probably 12, he started... Uh, he started getting into the marijuana. Um, Brody had ADD, ADHD. He was labeled with all kinds of different disorders, um, opposition defiance disorder, all kinds of different stuff. So he he had a lot of troubles. He had a lot of um, mental health issues. Um, 
he was uh, medicated when he was younger, but it just uh, probably the, um, the side effects of that really uh, was hard on him. He lost his appetite and everything. And uh, when did his relationship with opioid addiction start? It's a good question. Uh, like I said, uh, Brody was 14 when he was arrested the first time. Mm -hmm. And then he went to uh, a youth detention center. Mm -hmm. And then he was in and out of um, uh, halfway houses and stuff. And so that was kind of his life for the last 14 years. But uh, during the last couple years, uh, when he got out the last time, uh, he said that he had uh, he had got hooked on opioids uh, when he was in jail, mm. but he played it down saying, I'm, I'm okay, I don't, it's not gonna bother me, I'll, I'll get past this and mm. I'm not addicted and everything. And uh, you know, ourselves as a family believe that, but uh, over time we really started to see that uh, it had taken its his toll on his life. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of toll does opioids take on a young man's life? Uh, really, um, he couldn't work. He had a hard time holding a job. Um, there were mornings where he just could not get out of bed because he was, he was too high, he was too out of it. And then he would lose his job and go from one job to the other. And then when you don't have a job, you don't have money, and then you want opioids, um, you know, you, you turn to more criminal stuff and everything. So he's, uh, he got in trouble for some of that, but his body, I seen his body go through withdrawal mm. and uh, things like losing your bowels and really having no control over it. And it, uh, it's, it, it was horrible to watch. It was, uh, we, we as a family had no idea how deep he was in at the time, mm. but during the last year of his life, we really, uh, it was really an eye opener for us. As a firefighter, as you alluded to, Jeff, you're going out on these calls, you know, you're seeing people addicted, overdosing on opioids. What is it like to know your son is going through this battle and then you're going, you know, in your professional life, you're also trying to save people in this town from this epidemic, this crisis? Yeah, uh, for sure. It's, um, it's hard as you as a what I see and what I go through. Because yeah. I use that for a teaching moment with him to, to tell him what, uh, what's out there, wh what I'm seeing with people, how many people are you know, um, dying with these uh, opioids and stuff. And you know, then you go to these calls and we don't, um, we don't know who's there. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I, I hope it's not him. Mm. I hope I'm not showing up to him. Mm. And uh, so it's, it's hard. You know, you see, you see what the families are going through and everything, and you know you're going through that at home yourself. But you feel, you feel helpless. You feel that actually, you feel some guilt. You feel, can I do more? Should I have done more? And everything. But um, in the end, um, you know, there's nothing more than we could have done. You had a special moment with Brody um, and talking to him about faith and about Jesus. Tell me about that conversation. Yes, uh, Brody grew up um, with myself and, and his mother back and forth for 
a number of years. And he attended the Brantford Christian School here mm -hmm. for four years. Um, and then he wasn't able to go there anymore. So he kind of turned away from his faith and just lived for the moment, lived for the pleasure. And that went on for a number of years. But about a year before he died, he, um, he called me up and he said, Dad, he said, I'm, I've been having some bad dreams. And he said, I, I don't know what to do. And uh, he said, there's, there's something that's just tormenting me. And, uh, you know, what, what can I do about this? And I just used it as an opportunity to, um, you know, to open up to, to the Lord, to him and everything. And I got a sense of his heart and everything. And he, um, I said, uh, you know, have you accepted Christ? Have you ever, have you ever done that? And he said, well, no, not really. I said, would you like to? And he said, yes, dad, I would like to. And um, so I just read him some scripture and, and read him some material and made sure he was genuine about it and everything. But what I didn't know is the last little bit that he was in jail, he, he had started to seek on his own. Mm. And I was not aware of that. So um, that day I led him to the Lord and he, he gave his heart and he lived the best he could with his addictions and his uh, mental health issues. Yeah. He lived that walk the best yeah. he could. You're, from what I understand, one of your old teams were the ones that were called to Brody. Take Twice. Me, take me back to the day when they found him. Yes, April 28th, 2021. I was here, number two station, and we get notices on the, uh, the captain's cell phone when calls come in, and we did hear that there was a it came in as vital signs absent at a motel on Coburn Street. And you just think nothing of it. You just think, well, that's not us that's going to that. That's, that's an overdose that uh, the main station will go to. So you just, just left it at that. And probably about a couple hours later, we were, we were just standing around and we seen a police officer come in and uh, followed by our platoon chief. So we know that's really not normal. Mm. Um, so I walked out there to see what was going on. And my captain and my platoon chief said, this officer wants to, to speak to you. Mm. And as he started to speak, it just hit me that my dad, I thought something's happened to my dad. Mm. So my dad was 84 years old or is 84 years mm. old. Um, but he went on to tell me it was my son that he had died of an overdose. And I looked at my platoon chief and he said, yes. And, uh, and to this day, I cannot tell you the words that that officer spoke to me. Mm. I just remember a lightning bolt going through my body and trying to gather my thoughts and to thinking, okay, what, what happens from here? Mm. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a day I'll never forget. Um, it was a day that I would say I wasn't totally taken off guard, but you always hope that they're going to pull through and they're always going to, they're always going to get out of these addictions. But, uh, but Brody never did. Yeah. And, um, so I left work that day and it was probably 
was by far the hardest day of my life, happening to tell Brody's mother, my father, my mother, my wife, my kids, um, something I'll never forget. Yeah. What would you say to families that will be watching, parents that are watching that are currently journeying with a child, a loved one who is addicted to opioids? My advice would be take it seriously. Mm. This is definitely a life and death battle. Um, you know, I would say take it to the Lord, pray lots about it, do what you can. There's lots of good resources out there. Ask God for wisdom on this as to how to handle this because there's many different camps out there. There's the tough love camp. There's the enabling camp. We did both of them. And have good supports. Try to have a good relationship with your child as you walk through that. And there's not a lot you can do if they don't want help. But another thing I learned is um, don't beat yourself up about it. Don't think, should I be doing more? Could I have done more? This is my fault. Uh, my son was given every opportunity in life to succeed. He was given cars. He was given a motorcycle. He was given roof over his head. He was giving education. He was giving everything. Everything was thousands of dollars was throwing at him to try to get him to succeed and get on the right path. But the addiction that that he had was just so powerful mm. that it it just wasn't enough. And um, that would be my advice. Yeah. And it sounds like he was given a lot of love as well by you, Jeff. He was given a lot of love. He was. I ran into his uh, counselor at one of the halfway houses shortly after he died and he had heard about it. And he said, I've rarely see families like yours come in and give him the support that, that he had. Mm. It was, he had so much love, so many people in his corner pulling for him. Mm. Um, I, he, his, I went to uh, his, his grave a couple weeks ago mm. on his birthday and uh, I've only been there two or three times, it's hard to go, but I went on his birthday and I noticed there's a, there was a note there and it was from my mother, uh, Brody's grandma. And uh, it said, um, I decided to read it. And the thing that struck me on it was it said that um, if love had kept you alive, you would have been alive forever. And it's so true, it's so true. Thank you to Jeff for sharing his painful story of losing his son to an overdose. And while not everyone struggling with addiction finds healing, I spoke with one man who did. Daniel Lazazera battled addiction to drugs for years. He has now been clean for just over a year after finding Hope House, a recovery program in Barrie, Ontario. Here's my conversation with Daniel. So Dan, tell me how you ended up here. Here at Hope? 
Yeah. Almost. Uh, so I struggled with addiction for a long time. Um, I was at my wit's end mm. and I was about to give up mm. completely. And uh, yeah, my, uh, my mother heard uh, about this place through, um, through her pastor at her church. Okay. And uh, yeah, they gave me the number and I reached out and I did what I had to do to get here. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Describe Dan a year ago before you came here. Oh boy. Dan, a year ago, Dan was a very selfish person. Dan was uh, lost. Dan was hurting. Uh, Dan was angry. Dan was full of fear. There was so much Dan didn't want to feel anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So Dan just, that old Dan just liked to take from people and prey on the weak and just everything in my power to get what I wanted and needed. Hmm. Now looking back, why do you think you were that person? What got you there? Jeez, I, I don't know. I started off at a young age growing up in Montreal, um, got into drugs pretty early and, and uh, you know, having a sort of fend for myself a little bit. Not that my parents didn't provide because they did. They were great parents and they were always there for me. and. Yeah. Uh, you know, for my, my siblings and, and whatnot. Um, but just on the street, that street life, I going to school downtown Montreal, it was, um, you had to be that tough ma mm -hmm. macho type, right? Mm -hmm. And I sort of grabbed onto that. People, you know, were sort of scared of me. And I, I sort of liked that intimidating, uh, intimidating type of person mm -hmm. that, that I become. Like, people almost scared of me, right? And so, yeah, I just, I, I just, Went that path, I got into a lot of fights mm. and, and caused a lot of hurt. Tell me about the drug scene and what that was like. So the drug scene started off, uh, like I said, at a pretty young age. Um, it was never enough for me though. I always just wanted to get out of myself. I didn't want to feel nothing. It just, you know, I could always do more than anybody. I could drink more than anybody. Um, I always had to one-up somebody, I felt, right? So I, the drugs just got harder and harder mm. until until uh, it just consumed my life, my everyday life. I lived for, for the drugs, right? It just, I got into it intravenously, yeah. and it just, yeah, it just started eating away at me pretty Did quick. you ever OD? Yeah, 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 I've OD a few times, yep. So, so you know, we're doing this show on the opioid crisis right. and all that's happening. What have you seen when it comes to opioids on the streets and especially fentanyl? So with especially fentanyl, geez, so I've had people um, actually uh, die right beside me. Oh. Um, I've seen people overdose. I've had to bring people back. Um, I've had to use the naloxone on people. Uh, sternum rubs, stuff like that. I've had people tell me what have happened to me. I've woken up mm. out of an overdose, not knowing what's going on. Um, and the sad part was, is right after I'd come out, out of it, I, I would still pick up. Mm. I would still pick up no matter what. Why, why do you think that is? You know, I've read a lot of studies and there's almost this, like the, the, the pull of the drugs is just so overpowering that it overpowers even the idea that I could die. Yeah, so 
I think that's a big part of it is that I didn't care. Yeah. I almost wanted to die for the most part. I was so deep into the addiction, especially when I got to fentanyl that I, I couldn't care anymore. I didn't care. I was hurt everybody around me. There was so much shame, guilt, uh, eating me up inside, um, losing relationships, watching friends die, um, owing money. It was just a revolving door. So it was just, how far can I push it? Mm. Right? Not actually wanting to take my own life, but being okay if I died. Mm. Yeah. You tried to get clean before. Yep. You came here. Yes. What happened then? So I, um, I tried to clean uh, quite a few years back. I mean, I, um, I stayed clean a bit. I went to a few meetings, uh, AA meetings and NA meetings, stuff like that. I, I tried that route. Um, I tried doing it on my own for the most part. Um, again, it was a more of a pride thing. Um, I didn't want to show my weakness, being vulnerable. Um, I didn't really have anybody to open up to. Hmm. Um, just because I felt like I was going to get judged for the most part. Mm. Um, so it didn't take long before that started to consume me and I just, you know, the, the first thing that, that happened, anything, um, I can't really think like drastic, but any emotional thing I didn't want to feel, I just ended up right back there, mm. right back in it. And mm. I, I ended up right where I left off. So what was it about Hope House that you're now back on this track of being clean again. So it's definitely God. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely God. Um, through his knowledge and um, learning the word and uh, the good support around me and the people that, the like-minded people, I have to say, you know, being in a, in a treatment center at Hope House and um, meeting people that, that weren't shy to open up, hmm. tell me their side of the story, their side, Telling my story almost, mm. right? They were hurting just like me and how they got through it, right? And, um, you know, like I said, with the good support around here and being pointed to scripture and God and not really understanding any of that when I first came in and being open-minded to it was, was a big part of it. And um, understanding it, you know, day after day of, you know, talking about it with people and, you know, having that that new, uh, almost like a new sense of, of hope, right? Mm. Like something I, I wanted, right? I seen something in these people that I wanted really, what, mm. what it was, right? There was a happiness, they can get through things, um, not having to pick up, right? Mm. It, was, it was just something there that I wanted, right? Mm. Yeah. How would you describe Dan today? Oh boy. <laughs> So Dan, today I, I would like to think that um, you know I want to help. Mm. I uh, I could talk to people where before I didn't really want to talk to anybody. Mm. Didn't really want to give anybody time of day. Um, I want to share what has been freely given to me with people. Um, I want to let people know that there's hope. Mm. I want people to know that they can get through anything, you know, with Jesus and, and good support. Um, loving people. Mm. That's, that's, that's something new for me. Yeah. yeah. I see the light in your eyes, Dan. <laughs> and that, that only comes from Jesus. Dan, tell me about um, just 
I want to delve into that a little bit more when you what you saw on the streets with opioids. Like, yeah. you know, when we talk about crisis and you know thousands of people dying um, over the past number of years, describe that picture of like really what what like the damage opioids is doing to Canadians on the street. Oh boy, sucking the life out of them. That's for sure. It's causing uh, it's causing a lot of uh, hurt, theft, people not caring about themselves, mm. people living on the streets. I'm seeing needles around on the streets, even especially in this neighborhood. Um, the fights I see, the people knotted out on the corner. How are people getting addicted to opioids? Like, what's, what's the issue? <clears throat> it's so easily accessible, you can mm. get it anywhere. You can get it anywhere. I have people ask me for it all the time. Yeah. Just, I mean, my tattoos and whatnot, yeah. maybe I give off that look, but people ask me if they know where they can get some. You know, I've asked, people ask me if I want it, just so easily, you can get it anywhere. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's so simple. And then with, with the pandemic, obviously fentanyl has now played a, a bigger role yep. in people dying, you know. Explain that fentanyl aspect and what people don't understand about how deadly fentanyl is. Jeez, the littlest bit can kill you. Um, you may think that you're invincible, that you can do as much as you can, but it's so potent. And the, the thing it does to your mind, it, it, like you'd be nodded out and, and you'd come out of that for a split second, you think you'd do more, so you've already ingested a whole bunch or injected a whole bunch and you just think that you can just keep on going and that's slows down your respiratory system and it just takes you out pretty quick. And I've witnessed it. I witnessed people overdosing. I've had to give uh, a gentleman not too long ago a sternum rub right here waiting for an ambulance because hmm. right? I didn't want to give him naloxone. I didn't want to give somebody, you know, I wanted him to feel that pain in his chest because I know that pain. Mm -hmm. Me rubbing on his chest to wake him up mm -hmm. rather than just putting something up his nose and spraying. Mm -hmm. Right? Because it's that easy, right? Thinking that this will save me when sometimes it, it won't. Mm -hmm. It really won't. What are your thoughts about safe injection sites? I don't, I don't really agree with them at all. I mean... Why? Free access to go use. Where, what's going to happen when all these people decide to go get help? Where, is, where are they going to go get the help? Mm. Have you ever tried one? Have you, did you ever go to one? Um, I've never gone to a safe injection site. I've gone to free needle exchange mm -hmm. and they've just handed me freely boxes and boxes and boxes of needles and pipes and whatever I needed. Right? So it saved me money. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I didn't need to mm -hmm. spend money on that stuff. Um, anybody can go in and get it. Mm. Anybody. I send people in sometimes to mm -hmm. go get it for me, mm -hmm. right? They don't ask too many questions, right? And plus, for safe injection sites, they don't know what's coming off the street. They don't know what, what's going to be right there in front of them, mm -hmm. right? Did you, when you would go to one, did you think, um, this is a way for a better life? This is a way that I can be functioning, no. I can get better? No, no, no. No, this is a better way for me to save money. This is a better way for me to take advantage of uh, a system that will f give me free needles. Um, 
yeah, it was just more of a money thing for me. It was just, it was easier. Yeah. I could walk in there, didn't have to worry about going to a pharmacy even to buy any or, or anything like that. I could just walk in and they would just hand it to me. Hmm. Mm-hmm. How many friends have you lost? I'd have to say uh, close friends, uh, six, hmm. acquaintances, dozens. All to drugs? All to drugs. Hmm. Thanks, Dan. All right, it's now time for So What? An opportunity to talk about why we chose to delve into the opioid epidemic on this episode. I'm joined by senior producer Hannah Vanderkoy. Hey, Hannah. Hey. Thoughts? Why did we choose this topic? Yeah, so these interviews were part of a a bigger special with 100 Huntley Street. And this is a topic both you and I talked about. Like, we've covered the opioid crisis Mm -hmm. before how it and it's not going away so how can we cover it in a different way in a meaningful way um and so i reached out to jeff just knowing he was a first responder mm-hmm. um we had had him on a previous special um he had prayed for first responders in that one and then finding out um that his son had actually mm-hmm. passed away uh, fairly recently and, and he was ready to share his story and then um same with daniel finding daniel and, and hearing his story it was really i found inspirational to hear yeah yeah um when i sat down with jeff you could still feel the rawness i'm even getting goosebumps the rawness of his story and his pain but i think like so many families who feel so helpless in a situation like this um he had done everything he could do and, and that was kind of his, at the end of the interview, I think he, he also encouraged people as well uh, and families when I asked for, you know, advice that he would give to, you know, yeah, there comes a point where you can't do anything else. And it makes me think about, you know, um, people who are in this work all the time. In part two of, you know, next our next uh, episode, you'll hear from Matt, Matt Smedley, who works uh, very closely with people in downtown Eastside. And um, yeah, that work can get very tiring, right? Because you're journeying with somebody who continues to be pulled back because of many different factors, right? Trauma, um, things in their past, just simple addiction. Like there's a, a multitude of reasons why people get enthralled into uh, addiction and then when we look at opioid addiction. What are your thoughts about, um, and I know we've talked about this a lot, about all of the different, the myriad of options people have, but this money that's being thrown towards um, safe injection sites and that being, that seems to be like the primary option that the government is backing. Yeah, it feels... It feels like the easiest option mm. and the cheapest cheapest option for them. And I think while people will say, advocates will say, well, we need to we need to do harm reduction to keep people alive. If there's any hope of recovery, I think if there's any hope of recovery, detox and recovery beds need to yeah. be readily available. And I just worry that that's not going to happen. Um, and so we're just kind of kicking kicking the can down yeah. the road. Yeah, I really think, and I'm sure that there are people out there that are doing holistic work, but I I guess that continues to be the gnawing question in the back of my head. Because, you know, we heard from from Daniel who said, yeah, I would go to a safe injection site, grab a whole bunch of needles and sell them back to people on the streets. Like, that's what he used the safe injection sites for, not 
not to make sure he got you know clean uh, needles to to uh, to take the drugs, but it's like yeah, how do we how do we as a nation as we're seeing this unfold and seeing this epidemic unfold, how do we look at this holistically? And I'd be interested to find out if there are people. I'm sure that there are Canadians that are looking at looking at a holistic approach. You're right, the beds and recovery beds. You know, again, knowing that you can't just take somebody off drugs and expect that they're going to survive. There has to be an approach to that. So maybe it is safe injection sites. But also psychologically, all of the things that need to go into recovery, I feel like, are maybe missing as we've done our research. Yeah. And with every harm reduction announcement, I don't see anything being said about recovery. Like, oh, we're also going to be dedicating money or funds or resources to recovery. I think then I'd be a little more open to it if I saw even a smidge of of, uh, resources dedicated to that. Yeah. Still so much work to do and such a big issue. And of course, we'll continue covering it on Context. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks for listening to Context Beyond the Headlines podcast and a special thank you to Jeff Walsh and Daniel Lazazera for sharing their experiences and their stories, amazing stories with us today. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, know that you are not alone and you don't have to do this alone. There are resources to help you fight through this. You can find more information at crossroads.ca slash opioid crisis, and we will link in our episode description. Next week, we discuss harm reduction in the opioid crisis. BC has decriminalized possession of small amounts of illicit drugs. I sit down with Matt Smedley, who works directly with people struggling with addiction in Vancouver's downtown east side. Context Beyond the Headlines is a production of Crossroads Christian Communications. It is executive produced by Melissa McEachran, Produced by Hannah Vanderkoy, edited by Kyle Smistra, and hosted by me, Maggie John.